American Contingency, how are you? Uh, Dustin here, and we have a guest in studio today. Um, it's been, you know, podcasts. We're, we're trying to do more. We're trying to get more guests and roll them out. So you may see some faces and some personalities that you've seen on other channels adjacent to American Contingency, but we've never had this man on our podcast proper. So without further ado, Mr. Kevin Estella, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for uh, inviting me to the studio. It's first time here. Yeah. Driven by it a bunch of times. Yeah. So, it's- uh, quite a production. Yeah, we're, we're, we're hidden away, we're tucked away, and uh, this studio has been a, a real growing process. It's even, we were just talking about before we hit record, that mm-hmm. like there's more stuff we're going to improve and move around, and uh, it's been really nice to have uh, a quiet studio where we can just sit and talk and not hear anything. Like the, we're, we're right by a, a really heavily trafficked road, and so uh, in some of the earlier episodes, folks might have heard it. Or, uh, or been curious, like, why the audio sounded different. We're in a completely different space now, so that's just some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, Kevin, I don't think you've ever done any content for American Contingency. Not yet. Not yet? So this will, this is the first time. So mm-hmm. I folks may recognize you uh, from the Fieldcraft Survival side of the house or from just your own publications and books that you've written. So uh, for the audience who doesn't know you, give, give us your introduction. Yeah, so I'm kind of the new guy at Fieldcraft Survival, uh, or I should say one of the new guys, uh, one of the new full-time guys. You know, there are a lot of new faces at Fieldcraft Survival. We're, we're constantly expanding. I mean, I just came on board. Uh, technically, January 1st was my first full-time day mm-hmm. at Fieldcraft, but I was working at the sawmill uh, doing some, you know, kind of piecemeal work uh, in November and in, uh, in January, earlier in January. Um, but basically my background, you know, Mike reached out to me in June and he said, hey, you've been teaching survival skills for a long time. Have you ever thought about doing it full time? And at the time I was teaching at a public uh, high school mm-hmm. and I was teaching history. So I was kind of weighing my options. I was like, hmm, do I continue working at a public high school where at the time we were doing distance learning and it was like zero satisfaction to be a teacher because you really don't have any true interaction with the kids. Right. Uh, and you don't feel like you're getting you're getting the message across. You're being as effective as possible. So Mike offers me the job. I go out to Prescott. I teach the bug out on foot class. And I'm like, this is where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And then I go back to teaching in the fall. And I was like, well, I already have my mind made up. I'll finish off this year. And it was even worse in the fall than it was in the springtime. So I put in my two weeks notice, uh, sold my condo and, you know, decided to move out here to Utah. Um, but prior to that, you know, I was working as a survival instructor uh, on the side with my company, I was working as the lead survival instructor with the Wilderness Learning Center from 2007 to 2012, mm-hmm. writing magazine articles, traveling, doing a whole bunch of product reviews, and it just seemed like the natural fit. So sure. when I got out here and when I started hanging out with the, the Fieldcraft crew, I was like, this is where I need to be. Yeah. And I'm not regretting one moment of that whole decision process. You definitely could have picked a, a worse place in the world to live. It's incredibly beautiful out here. And the access to the different types of terrain and environments in the state of Utah is, is kind of incredible. I, I came from Oklahoma, so you know people think that that state is just, there's, there's nothing there. We have very small mountains and hills, and um, it, was, it was a big adjustment to come from you know the, the Great Plains, essentially, high up into the mountains. So it's been I, I enjoy it here, and, and I'm happy to have you here, man. It's it's great to to see you come on board. Uh, I followed you on social media for a while before you, know, you were uh, doing anything official with Fieldcraft. Mm-hmm. So it's neat to see uh, kind of you know everybody 
converging on this one organization to build it into something that's going to be really beneficial for people from all walks of life. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, this area, to, to your point about it being a great place for all sorts of recreation, mm-hmm. coming from Connecticut, you know, we have no places legally that you're allowed to just go backcountry camping. You have to go to a state campground or you have to go along the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. But even then, you're still limited to camping only where the lean-tos are or the shelters. So a lot of my backcountry camping was in Pennsylvania or New York or it was up in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Um, so I'm leaving an area where there's very little true public land where you can do what you want legally. Uh, and I'm coming to this area where there's so much BLM land and it's really open to the to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, granted, Connecticut has a lot of resources, and I did a lot of fishing and hunting there. But square mileage, oh my gosh, just uh, different. And I, and I haven't even really had a chance to explore yet. But there are so many people who are are willing to say, "Hey, I want to take you to this fishing spot," and I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, even though I'm I'm busy with a lot of work over at Fieldcraft, I'm super excited to to get out there and throw on the camis and and get in the woods. You know, I think in the spring too, like once you know, they'll, it'll still be cold, but once the snow kind of stops putting a, a damper on everybody's lives, it'll be a big time to get out and explore the area. Like I just moved here a couple of months before you. So I'm, I'm familiar with the, you know, it's like, dang, it's winter time. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of winter sports to do like going snowboarding this weekend. And so that's, that's awesome. Like I used to have to drive 10, 12, 15 hours to get to a dang place to go snowboarding. And now it's, you know, 20 minutes. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's hitting a couple of red lights along the way. I know you've probably answered this a million times, but what on earth and how in the world did you get started down the path of survival instructing or being interested in the field? Well, because you don't because you were yeah. you never in the military, never in the yeah. military. So like no. that's that's like the typical, you know, oh, I used to be in the army. I went to SEER school and that's when I really became passionate about survival. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I mean, I've answered this question a bunch of times, right. but I can frame it in terms of contingency. Mm-hmm. So in terms of contingency, my father grew up in the Philippines. Dad was born in 1939. 1941 is when the Japanese Imperial Army invaded the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So at the time, my grandfather was kind of like a hellraiser, a little bit of a rebellious guy. He got into some trouble with some Japanese. It may or may not, it did, (laughs) involved, uh, you know, possibly assaulting a couple of Japanese guys that were in a prison. Uh, You know, my dad to this day says, you know, I'm not proud of what my dad did, you know, doing that because eventually it led to my family being marked by the Japanese Imperial Army. Right. When Japan invaded in January of 1941, that's when there was a, a, a standing order. It was like, find this guy who did this to these Japanese citizens. And my grandfather was like, we gotta move into the jungle. So a number of people from my father's town in the Philippines moved into the jungle. It was on their property, uh, in the back acreage of their property, and they lived there from 1941 until 1945. So my dad grew up, he was essentially a jungle boy, Mm -hmm. uh, grew up in the jungle. And during that time, he experienced whooping cough. He, you know, they had to go out and hunt and fish at night so they couldn't be spotted by the Japanese. And then when they came back to the village in 1945, everything was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Um, The plantation that my my family owned over there was destroyed. The cars were stolen. The the houses were looted. You can imagine the houses were being used as, uh, you know, places to, to board Japanese soldiers when they're in the town. Right. Um, so my dad came over to the United States in 1965. He met my mom, three kids, right? I'm the youngest of three. And as a, as a young kid, my dad would put me to sleep telling me stories. Oh, when I was your age and I was in the jungle, right? And everyone wants to be like your dad, like your dad's your first hero, right? Sure. 
And uh, I was like, well, show me that. So we'd go in the backyard and he'd set up like the box on the stick with the string going to the door and we'd catch possums and raccoons and stuff like that. And then we'd build fires. And, and I mean, that really, really caught my, my attention. I never learned how to properly throw a football when I was a kid, never learned how to properly, you know, catch a baseball with a baseball mitt. Um, but it didn't matter. Like, like I was never into professional sports. I'm mm. still not into professional sports, but as a kid, it was like, oh, wow, this is what my dad taught me. And then I found at like age 10 that there were novels, like young young uh, reader novels like uh, by Arthur Roth, like Trapped, Avalanche, Two for Survival. I was like, oh my God, there's books about survival. Holy crap. So I started reading those books and then I found out that there were actual manuals about survival. And I was like, wow, what's this guy, Bradford Angiers? What's this book all about? How to survive in the woods? Yeah. What's FM 2176? Oh my God, it's a military survival manual. Wow. So... Over the years, I, I started reading. I started collecting, you know, survival kit components. At least I thought it was survival kit components mm -hmm. when I was like twelve. Um, I started going to the woods with uh, with a big ass knife strapped to my leg, thinking I was invincible, right? And uh, it, it just it, the passion never never disappeared. Right. Um, at some point, I was like, I want to get into more of this. So I started working at Eastern Mountain Sports. I started learning about like the technical aspects of apparel and gear, how and why it works started taking rock and ice climbing lessons. Um, I was into canoeing and kayaking, so I was always outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, fishing, hunting. Then at 23 or 24, I was like, let me formalize my outdoor education and just see if what my dad taught me was legit. So I started training with like the main primitive skills school, Jack Mountain Bushcraft. And then I eventually met my, my mentor, Marty, who ran the Wilderness Learning Center. Marty was a Vietnam veteran, EOD specialist, mm -hmm. infantry, I mean, this guy was a, a survival specialist in the military. His first assignment in Vietnam was staying on a boat uh, offshore, and they would bring plants back. And Marty was in charge of creating the manual that the, Viet uh, the Vietnam uh, servicemen and women, I'm sorry, servicemen, no women yet. Yeah, no women back then. Yeah, yeah, except yeah. for the, the medical <laughs> roles. Uh, the servicemen were using as a survival reference in case they were, you know, uh, deep behind enemy lines. So uh, I met Marty. I took a course with Marty, and then a year later, Marty was like, hey, uh, I want you to come up for the basic class. And I was like, Marty, I took the basic class last year. I want to take the advanced class. He's like, no, 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 you're taking the basic class. I'm like, okay. So I drove up there, and next thing you know, Marty's like, all right, introductions all around. And then he said, and that's Kevin. He's my new instructor. <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'm an instructor now. Oh, man. Um, and it was kind of cool that I got thrown to the wolves that way because, um, you know, Marty knew that I was capable. He, we went camping with he and his wife and all of our mm -hmm. friends, and we did a lot of trips together. So he was watching me, kind of testing me on the fly. Um, and that really kind of was the formal start of like teaching survival skills was with, with Marty Simon, Wilderness Learning Center. That was 2007. And we're, you were already teaching high school at that point. Yeah, so, yeah, I, so you're that was the both. first year in. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you find, I, so I used to teach in the military, outside the military before that, everything from, uh, swim lessons all mm -hmm. the way through like combat operations or, or my old job in the military, which was PSYOP. Um, and do you think that like, so I noticed that when I first started teaching, I wasn't, I may, I probably wasn't very good. And I know I probably wasn't very good. Do you find that um, there's some parallels between working with a high school students in very unfamiliar curriculum and then moving on to, you know, adults or civilians learning survival things, probably being like completely lost in right. what to do. Um, do you think that it was beneficial to be working in a high school teaching every day? Oh, yeah. I mean, let's face it. Teaching at a high school, I mean, 
as much as I, I will knock it, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe we're being forced to do this and we're <laughs> being forced to do that. It, there were so many great moments about it, right? And the times that were really frustrating are outshadowed by the great times that as a teacher were fulfilling, right? Like working with some fantastic kids that went on to unbelievable success. Yeah. In terms of the parallels, you have to manage expectations, right? You can't assume that people are going to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed this over the years with the survival skills, like even something as simple as carrying pre-made tinder, right? Petroleum jelly and cotton balls. This technique has been around for over a century. Mm-hmm. I show it to people and they're like, did you invent that? And I'm like, absolutely <laughs> not. I'm like, wait, you never saw this before? And they're like, no, no, I, I struggle lighting the fire in my fireplace. And you just have to manage expectations. So initially what I'll do with almost any class is I'll try to find out what, what people are trying to get out of the class. Mm-hmm. And then by looking at their expectations, uh, or I should say their their objectives, then I can kind of understand what they're coming to the class with. Um, so that's a that's a very distinct parallel is that I can't assume if I were teaching history that kids would know what caused the French Revolution. Yeah, I can't assume that people are going to come to my survival class knowing how to handle a knife. And that's why I joke around and I call it the first blood award. <laughs> uh, number one, because I'm a huge Rambo nerd. Yeah. Number two, because there will be someone in a class that's going to nick their finger and they're going to hide it from me. So we're going to be working with, with knives. They're going to be carving. And then you're going to see someone retract. You're going to be like, you just won the award, didn't you? You know? And, uh, and you know, most of the time it's just a minor cut. Right. But it's, a, it's something interesting when you see someone who carries a knife every single day and they, they want to be a flesh cutter, mm-hmm. right? Like they want to – that's their defensive knife. Well, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole um, as a Filipino. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, no. Knife fighting, there's there's a little more to it than just keeping a, yeah. a three and a half inch folder in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it, it's interesting. People show up to courses with knives, but they don't. They've never truly used it. Um, but it's awesome. Just like teaching in the high school, where a kid says, "Wow, that's why the French Revolution happened." Mm-hmm. Oh my God, those conditions are just like today. That same light bulb moment that happens in a classroom can happen around a campfire. Can happen in like the teaching circle. So, absolutely long-winded, short answer. <laughs> Here we go. Um, teaching the high school taught me those universal concepts of an educator yeah. that you'll find anywhere. Yeah, I I agree with you that some of the most rewarding times ever in any instruction is when the students get it. They You, you see that light bulb go off and then they're like, holy shit. And, and that allows, at least for me as an instructor, uh, it allowed me a, you know, a little boost of confidence to be like, okay, I am communicating with these folks effectively, sometimes you know, through interpreters or whatever the case may be, but it was still a concern that if the subject matter is too high and I, or, you know, too high level and I'm not able to explain it effectively, then, then I'm not being effective as an instructor. So mm-hmm. it is, I agree, getting that, that feedback, uh, immediate feedback, seeing the students understand you're like, great, I'm doing my job properly. What the AMCON community wants to know, mm-hmm. and, and it, was, it was loaded in bringing you here, is how you prioritize survival. I don't want to say just equipment, but the, the, men, the mindset or the mentality that you have going into a potential survival situation or just throughout your daily life. You know, what are some of the things you keep in mind? Because that's what folks want to know. Yeah, um, something that comes up every class. Mm-hmm. And it drives people crazy when they have that moment where they hang their head in shame is I ask people, I'll, I'll pull the audience. I'm like, all right, who here hit snooze on their phone this morning? 
and I'll get out of a class of 25, I'll probably get seven or eight. They'll be like, I did. And I'll say, so you started your day with failure. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I used to do this at the high school and I guarantee uh, that, you know, I'm sure people have felt this before. Like when, when you have someone say that to you with that, that, that sarcasm, it, it sinks in. And they always say sarcasm is not an effective teaching tool. Like teachers shouldn't use it, but you never forget it. If, especially yeah. if it's something important like this. So when I tell people, hey, did you hit snooze this morning? And they're like, oh, yeah, I did. And I say, you started your day with failure. It's because I want people to start their day with success. Mm -hmm. I want people to stack victories throughout a day, right? If you wake up and snooze is going off, it's ringing, it's, it's constantly going on, and you hit turn that thing off and you get out of bed, well, guess what? You did not let an electronic device conquer you. Well, guess what? If you can conquer your phone, you can conquer a simple objective. Um, you know, who was it? Uh, McRaven. He said, make your bed every day, mm -hmm. right? Jocko talks about waking up at 4.30. He's always posting pictures <laughs> yeah. of his watch. And whether you wake up at 4.30 or 5.30, 6.30, in my eyes, as long as you're waking up with purpose and you're waking up with the mindset that you're not going to let things defeat you, that is such an important way of starting your day because it sends you on the correct trajectory throughout mm -hmm. the day. If you can defeat your alarm clock, then guess what? That morning workout, you could probably defeat. You wake up and you do 10 push-ups. That's 10 more than the person that didn't do them. So something that's really important is starting your day with victory. Something that's really important is understanding the importance of diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to buy the cool pistol, the cool knife, the, the super lightweight backpack, or the high-speed you know, tactical nylon clothing. Yeah. But if you don't have your physical conditioning in check, then none of that matters. Um, <laughs> if you are not eating well and understanding what your capabilities are in terms of strength, cardiovascular fitness, then you really need to slow your roll and mm -hmm. you need to take a step back and say, where am I? Am I packing on five extra pounds? I mean, yeah, it's winter weight, COVID weight, or is it, you know, I'm packing on five extra pounds just because I'm being lazy. Mm -hmm. I think something that's so important, but it's missing in the the prepper, the survival community is honesty. Yeah, you know, there's always there's always this, the the guy that's like, I'm gonna do what Jed did in Red Dawn. I'm gonna run to the woods. It's like, oh, you're gonna run to the woods. Have you ever spent a night in the woods? Well, you know, I've never had that opportunity. So you're not answering my question. You know what I mean? So when's the last time you ran? When's the last time you ran to the yeah. woods? Right? Can you walk to the woods with that rock? When was the last time you rocked? People have a hard time accepting honest mm -hmm. honest answers. Uh, so I think being honest, being physically fit, starting your day with victory, those are three simple lessons that we can all apply immediately. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I'm glad you mentioned it because it's one of the things that I, we talk about in the idea of you know building up your local American contingency group, your family, your friends, like whatever your network is that you're trying to improve upon. Um, being honest about what your current capabilities are and what your what your capacity could be if you just spent a little purposeful time focused on mm -hmm. you know if it like you said if you've gained the 5 10 20 maybe maybe a little bit more a covid weight start off with walking something to get your body used to moving because i in the military you spend a lot of time rucking like you have a heavy backpack on and combat boots and you're walking around in the woods or on pavement or whatever mixed material you're going to be moving through and your feet get used to it like your 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 feet have muscles inside of them that need to be used to experiencing a load and the stress and what it feels like to be 
sometimes just standing for eight, 10, 12 hours at a time, taking breaks, of course, but that has a cumulative impact on your body. And if you're not used to it, the first time you go out and do it, it sucks. It sucks. You're going to have blisters all over your feet. You're going to get cramps and have places that hurt. You didn't know hurt mm-hmm. whenever you'd go walking because you hadn't spent the time getting your body prepared for it. So, you know, I, I'll say that as an encouragement to Amcon as a whole, as a community, you go outside and take walks, make it an activity with your family, make it an activity with your animals or with your kids or whatever the case may be um, in, in my own backyard. So I came from Oklahoma. We lived in a rural area, but it much like Connecticut is either state-owned land that you can't access or privately owned mm-hmm. land that you damn sure can't access. So you're limited in some of the places you can go, but we had like a nice half mile loop that was just in our neighborhood. Well, I've watched NASCAR growing up, so I can go turn left until I'm tired of turning left and be done. And I thought that that prepared us, you know, walking the dogs a couple hours a day. Um, I thought that that prepared us for like life in Utah. Uh, No. (laughs) The terrain changes. I had forgotten all my trips overseas uh, walking through the mountains, vacationing in the mountains, growing up, visiting them. Uh, I forgot what it was like to live in the mountains where the terrain changes are very real. And it's like, if I'm going to take my dog for a walk, you know, it might only be two or three miles, but I'm going to change elevation 400 feet because where I live is I got lucky and we have a huge trail complex right behind us. And it's just, it's really fortunate to be able to take advantage of that. But instead of making it like a, a training plan right. or trying to make it something that's regimented. I I know some people do well in that environment, but not everyone does. So I try to make things not fun, but feel less like work and more like something that even if it is work and hard work, I'm enjoying the process. I'm having a benefit. Um, I thought the story you mentioned about identifying plants uh, from Vietnam off the coast, that's, that's incredibly interesting. And it shows the academic approach that's required to survival. Um, it's no longer just, you know, you, you have a hatchet and a flint and that's all you need and you're going to be good for 25 years. You, depending on where you are in the world, there's a lot more considerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the American contingency groups, we have uh, a criteria, like a list of criteria that we are uh, essentially grading them on or, you know, seeing if they can answer the questions. And one of the big components of it is local flora and fauna and uh, also water sources. And like if there there's places in the United States, you would think, the water's fresh, clean, and clear because that's what it looks like. But there's been a decade or more of industrial pollution, you know, 50 miles away that has now impacted another area. So I think it's awesome um, that you you come from a teaching background. You are aware of the, at least it seems like in passing, I haven't asked you directly, but you're aware of like the academic side mm-hmm. of the survival world. Like you learned from your dad in the backyard some of those hard skills, but then cracking open manuals. I reference military manuals on the show all the time because if they have a lot of good information and if you simply open them and read them and apply them, they sometimes have practical exercises. Right. It's right. like, hey, here's here's what you need to do to go see if you can actually pull this off. And I encourage people to find those. They're they're Googleable. Do you want to plug your book? I don't know what yeah, the rules sure. are on that. I mean, I mean I'll, I'm happy to plug my book because yeah. it's my book. It's 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. But I would also recommend a lot of other books, yeah. right? Because we live in an age of censorship. Mm-hmm. We live in an age where the internet can be shut down very quickly. We live in an age where <clears throat> people are being monitored. There, there's no doubt about it. Well, the beautiful thing about books is that we can transfer them from one person to the next, right? Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I enjoyed writing so many magazine articles is because I can create my own essential, like non-official 
survival manual in all 162 magazine articles I've written so far. So if you guys are out there and you have 162 copies of my different magazine articles, you have the unofficial first edition of my book. Um, but I mean, there's so many good books that should be in everyone's survival library, yeah. right? Like the military survival manual is great as a baseline understanding, um, because the military survival manual is going to be completely devoid of a lot of spirituality in mm -hmm. the books where I get it. There are people that are out there that want to go and they want to experience nature and they want to experience the, the quote unquote healing power of trees where they literally will put the top of their forehead, the center of their chi to the, the tree and feel what the tree does. If you want to do that, do it on your time. I'm not going to write about that in my book. I'm not going to encourage anyone to do that unless that's what they want to do. But after they've learned the hard skills. Yeah. Um, so the military survival manual is great. Mountaineering freedom of the Hills is just a great overall wilderness mobility book, mm -hmm. especially for places like Utah, where it's going to teach you a little bit of rope skills, uh, some wilderness survival, some medicine, great book, classic book should be in everyone's survival library. Another one would be the Peterson's Field Guide to Edible and Medicinal Plants. Mm -hmm. And I recommend if people are trying to learn edible medicinal plants, you learn from an expert who can show you and someone who's truly vetted. Don't just go with the crazy guy down the street that says he knows the plants and the next thing you know you're eating, uh, you know, poison hemlock, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> or doing, by the way, I'm not a big fan of the universal edibility test uh, uh -huh. because it was really only meant for the most elite of the elite military. It wasn't meant for the average Joe. Uh, certain stages when you're wiping the plant to the inside of your lip will kill you mm -hmm. with certain plants. So please don't do the universal edibility test. But Peterson's guide would be a good one. And then back up whatever manual you're using to learn plants uh, with additional manuals, maybe one with a line drawing of the plant where it's just you know pen and ink, mm -hmm. and then another manual. So you have three references showing the plant three different ways, possibly at three different uh, stages of life. And then that way you can say that you have a pretty firm idea of what plant you're looking at. Freedom of the Hills, Peterson's Guide, um, Six Ways In, 12 Ways Out, awesome book. You actually have to look this one up. You're not going to find it in any bookstore. You have to send an actual check to <laughs> the guy that sells it. It's uh, from the uh, United States Search and Rescue Operations Group. Very, very down and dirty survival skills. Love it. Mm -hmm. um, everyone that I've recommended that book to says, I bought that copy and I sent in a check for another one to give to a friend. Um, there are so many good books that are out there. And again, every one of these books goes into your library. So if the power goes down, you're not looking on your phone for something, you have it in front of you, the, the, the paper version. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons what really drew Mike to wanting to do the Fieldcraft Journal is because we're now going to have a hard copy of, of hard skills presented that will survive a power outage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll plug my book, but I, I highly recommend that everyone builds a survival library um, and that they go on places like half.com and other websites where you can get discounted books because mm -hmm. a survival library can be just as expensive as, as building up a, an armament. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, you figure a lot of those books, they may be in limited circulation mm -hmm. now, especially if they're, you know, they, they didn't get big print orders or runs right. and they can be hard to find or, or at a premium. So uh, what I'm going to do is just for everybody, if you're listening uh, or watching, I'm going to put a description or a list of those books that you recommended. Uh, I'm going to put you at the top, though, because shame, shameless, <laughs> shameless promotion for our guests. Um, I had a I had a sergeant major uh, when I was in the Army and he was a, I'm, I was not an SF guy, mm -hmm. but he was a SF guy in charge of us. So uh, he sitting down and talking to him whenever he was an instructor at Fort Bragg in the Q course. Um, one of the things he did is he, he had almost as many manuals 
in his bag as he did, you know, gear type items or not, not survival type items because it was, it was a training environment, but, um, you know, sustainment type things like MREs and water mm-hmm. and changes of clothes and all that. And he said he had nearly as much weight in references and manuals because it was so important that in an austere environment out in the woods, you don't have any of the connectivity that this was at a time before cell phones were widespread. So he, uh, <clears throat> He would sit his guys down in the woods and they would, you know, go over manuals. And if he wasn't sure of something, he had that reference exactly like you're saying, rather than rather than rubbing the poison hemlock inside or ingesting right, something that's right. gonna, you know, give you diarrhea and then create a whole host of other problems in a in an environment like that. He just simply checked it, just check it first. He had it available. It wasn't a digital thing. Paper doesn't, you know, there there are there are some books that have better quality paper than others, but it's like if you're if you're gonna argue about that, then come on, it's a it's a whole different discussion. Right. Um, do you think, so for, I know a lot of folks, uh, they focus on the mobility, um, the mobility side of things and using that as like a platform to sustain life or to get through uh, longer periods of time. I know on your person, I've seen you do pieces of content about that. Top five. Do you have top five things you just keep with you? So I, I've said this every single, yep. every single course. <laughs> you guys can challenge me any any day of the week and twice it. on Sundays, you're going to see a Swiss army knife and you're going to see a fire seal in my right front pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone needs to carry a Swiss army knife as a baseline, right? Because it gives you the ability to uh, have a cutting tool. It's, it, it, I won't say it's acceptable, but it's more acceptable than a dedicated folding knife, like mm-hmm. with a lock blade or whatever, or uh, a dedicated fixed blade that you're carrying. A Swiss Army knife is red. It, it's a Boy Scout tool, or it's a tool of a traveler, or whatever. Um, so I always carry a Swiss Army knife because uh, it's something that um, you know allows me to uh, have a lot of utility in a small package. The other thing that I always carry every single day is a Bic lighter. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm uh, proficient with fire starting with friction fire and with the ferro rod it does help to be able to go right to flame. Right. Um, sometimes it's okay to have your ferro rod where you're sparking it into tinder. And I recommend if you guys are able to carry pre-made tinder, carry pre-made tinder. Vaseline and cotton balls are dirt cheap. Um, but sometimes it does help to go right to flame, mm-hmm. right? Like on a, on a day where it's, uh, you know, extremely cold and you've, you're keeping this close to your body so it's not infe- uh, affected by the cold, to be able to go right to flame where you don't have to use two hands, it's a it's a game changer. So every day I carry Swiss Army knife, I carry a Bic lighter. Every single day I have a flashlight in my left front pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I just change out the batteries on this one today. Um, I carry the the ProTac 1L, 1AA. The only thing I've done to modify this one is uh, I've just added a little bit of um, bungee cord to this. And the reason for that is because I'm able to access mags for a, a pistol and I don't have to drop my light. This particular flashlight will run off of a one AA battery or a one L battery. Um, I picked up on this trick from a buddy of mine, even when he's traveling overseas, if the remote control on the TV has a AA battery and let's say that it's a place where resources are scarce, mm-hmm. he has no problem ripping a one AA battery out of a remote control or out of anything that might be running off of a AA battery. And now he has resources that allow him to keep his light running. Yep. Um, and I always tell people, until you can see in the dark without nods, carry a flashlight. Um, so flashlight, Swiss Army knife, Bic lighter. 
left back pocket, there's always a bandana. Uh, think of a bandana or a pocket square as a flexible utility tool. Mm -hmm. um, being Filipino, I can tell you the whole concept of a rock and a sock, we call it the trapo, improvised weapon. I can use a bandana, even though it's not as good as compressed gauze, it can be used for trauma purposes. It can be used as a hasty pouch to carry supplies that I'm, I'm gathering, mm -hmm. right? Um, bandanas have a million and one uses, right? You can use them in the age of COVID to cover your face and, and get into the store without someone screaming at you. Yeah. Um, I've used the bandana just as much as I've used a Swiss Army knife, just as much as I've used a lighter and the flashlight. Um, and then the last thing that I'll always tell people to carry is have reliable comms on you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm connected to my phone, obviously, because my job working for a media company is, is having uh, the ability to communicate, but it's also a way of scribing. Right, we use our, our phones to take pictures of, you know, Friday flat lays. I know I'm going to be taking a Friday flat lay picture. You'll, you'll, you'll see a, a Gossman knife and a hatchet. It's going to be awesome, by the way. Um, but we can use our phones to, to document, mm -hmm. right? So imagine if you have someone in your party. Let's say there's four or five of you guys, and someone suffers a medical emergency. Well, it would be great if you could provide to the next level of care. Um, and let's say that you already have someone, a primary medic, a secondary medic, you've got someone working as a litter. So you've got all, you've got all the hands that are necessary to take care of that problem. Well, what if you could then show someone, a medical professional who's the next level of care, this is what we did. So you keep a, a record of it. Mm -hmm. Having a reliable source of comms is super important. So Swiss Army knife, not to be the only knife, by the way, you should carry a, another knife. Some knives should be felt and not seen. Um, you should carry a Swiss Army knife, a Bic lighter, a flashlight, a bandana, cell phone, and that's on top of your keys in your wallet. Eventually, yeah. you know, next thing you know, you're going to have all this stuff. But That's why everybody's carrying man purses and yeah. backpacks. And all satchel. <laughs> satchel. Satchel. That's what it is. I keep calling it a merse. <laughs> yeah, it's a, Indiana Jones carried a satchel. You know? <laughs> so, so those are my recommendations. I, I think those are those are awesome recommendations. The, the one about having something to communicate with. Uh, either a cell phone, you know, if, if that's available, mm -hmm. even even in an austere environment, like you don't need cell phone coverage to be able to use the features on your phone, like taking notes, taking pictures, tracking things. There's some Bluetooth devices now, like for folks who have, you know, other medical concerns, there's now, you know, Bluetooth EKGs and shit. So you can do amazing. Yeah. Or, or uh, you know, I think there's some Bluetooth enabled pulse oxes. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't just read it off of the off of the deal, but people want to have their connected devices. So there's a million and one things that you can do outside of just the cell phone coverage. Um, we had another guest on uh, the the, uh, the Amcon ham radio network uh, lead. His name's Tom. Um, one of the things that he recommended in that same vein in the communication space is a writing utensil, mm -hmm. having something to write things down. You know, I, I smash cell phones all the time. I hate it. My wife hates it. Cell phone company loves it. But I go through phones like there's no tomorrow. So instead, what I do most of the time is I keep I keep a green book, like the standard, you know, government supply issued green books that people have probably seen. If you've ever been in the military, you've seen them. I know you've seen them floating around the office for sure, because uh, we can't give them up. They're, you know, pocket size. They can fit in a, in a cargo style pocket and not take up a lot of room. Um, but they have enough room and space that you can either do a right in the rain or, or whatever the case may be, because I have to take notes. And then whenever I'm traveling uh, through an area or if I'm going camping and stuff, I bring that book with me oh, for, yeah. for all the same reasons to, to remind myself either of something I saw in the environment or something that I need to you know, remember to do or just 
that's the kind of person I am. I, I like having little blocks that I can check off, you know, as I, as I get stuff done. Yeah, I'm a type A person too. I, I make notes, like right now, if you were to look at my computer at the HQ, <laughs> I have a personal to-do list, and then I have the Fieldcraft to-do list. Yeah. And I still have stuff on there that was pre-COVID that I was like, I need to get back to it. So right before COVID, I was like, I need to get my ham radio license. Mm-hmm. And I was studying up on it, studying up on it, COVID hit. And the guy that was gonna give me the test was one town over and they they couldn't they couldn't do it. So I'm ready to get back into that one, you yeah. know, now that I'm here. But uh the to do list is really important and that that's kind of goes back to that initial question about like some of the stuff you can do every single day. Having a list is really important. And this goes towards the concept of future self, right? Like I've heard people say, Well, you know, I wanna do what you're gonna do some I wanna be able to do what you do. I wanna go on this trip to Alaska or I wanna be able to um, go whitetail hunting, whatever it may be. And I'll be like, okay, you want to do that. How are you going to go there? How are you going to, like, what's your plan? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I just want to do it. So you have a dream. You don't have a goal, right? And I think that's really important is that if there are people listening who have these aspirations to do cool stuff, to want to go on that epic hunt, or they want to travel, or they want to get that black belt. Well, how are you going to do it? You need to come up with, and here we go again, honest plan to get there or else it's just a dream. And some people don't want to hear that because dreams can be crushed very easily. Yeah. Um, but then again, with a good plan, you can accomplish almost any dream. Right. And I just went really, really like, like almost teacherish. Well, but I mean, you know, it's like, important and, and it's an important p- point to bring up because in survival situations in particular, at least, you know, from what I understand, having never been in, in my planes never crashed, my helicopters never crashed. Like I've, my life's been pretty easy, even when it's been hard mm-hmm. for, for the most part. Um, I've had access to everything I've needed. You know, I've been hungry a few times, but who hasn't? And uh, one of the things that is most important is your will to make it through the situation, your desire to see that end. And you know, not everybody is going to have that innately, but to be able to build it is through exactly the steps you just described by taking something from a dream to a goal, because a dream is just a dream. A goal has action steps. Correct. It has a plan, something that you can tick off uh, each and every day, even if it's something small or minor, five minute walk, your 10 pushups, yeah. anything, it takes it out of dreamland and into attainable and realistic. And many have expiration dates mm-hmm. and people need to realize that too. It's like, you need to go after your goals now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's so easy to say, well, oh, I want to do this before summer. Okay. Well, it's going to be February next week. You need to start working on that. You mm-hmm. know, like people forget that there is a timeline or there should be a timeline and there should be an expiration date to every one of your goals. Yeah. Um, and the minute that you have that one goal and you attain it, you need to have another one because you don't want to get into the habit of settling. Mm-hmm. I hate the expression, someone settled down. If by settling down, it seems like you made a compromise, like, hey, I'm willing to give this up. There's no such thing as settling, in my opinion. You should constantly be striving for the next objective. You should constantly be working towards improvement, whether it's from like a combative ex, uh, uh, perspective, like if we were talking about grappling or, or striking or anything in the firearms community, mm-hmm. better weapon, better position. Right. I say how like in jujitsu, you know, it's okay to be in guard, but I would rather be inside control or I'd rather have someone in I'd rather be mounting on someone. Yeah. Um, better weapon, better position. Uh, you finish shooting a string of fire with a pistol, your firearm is now four or five rounds down. Well, what's better than a pistol that's four or five rounds down? A topped off 
pistol, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in life, we can apply that same concept of better position, better position. Every single day, you should be in a better position than you were the day before. Um, you know, another mentor called that the 24-hour clone concept, the PSYOC concept of the 24-hour clone. You better be better than yourself than you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. and, and I live by that every day. I try to. Being even being aware of that idea or that concept or that approach to life can fundamentally change not only your worldview but your effectiveness and your impactfulness in your own life, in your own goals and, and aspirations, your family, your community, and you know hopefully for the if we're, the the goal here, guys, is that you're listening to this and then you you then apply it to your own life, is that to your American contingencies groups or your community you can be better than you were yesterday. Because if you even are like in, I'll use recovery as an example, like recovery programs, first steps admitting you have a problem, being honest with yourself, being honest with everybody around you about your situation, about, you know, if you fucked up, you fucked up. It's okay. It happens. People fuck up. You make mistakes, but being able to learn a lesson from that, even if it's in the moment, like if I have a interaction with another employee and, you know, maybe I'm a little salty that day and I recognize that behavior in the moment. I can be like, okay, hey, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad about this situation. Like I'm frustrated about something else. I apologize. So then that the next time I go interact with that person, I remember in my in my own brain that, hey, take a different approach. Mm -hmm. Have a little different style this time whenever it comes to, you know, navigating the situation, be it a personality dispute, be it a piece of terrain. Like there's I, I have a fortunate ability, like I said, of being able to use that trail complex. And uh, I took one route that uh, was way longer, <laughs> way longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and then turns out on the way back, there was a 200-yard a shortcut that saved me you know, 45 minutes because it linked up with a, a separate trail. And just being able to, to remember, like, oh, well, I, yeah, I walked for five miles this direction. Uh, I could walk five miles that direction or look at my map, look at the lay of the land, figure out a different path forward and improve that so that the goal or whatever you're trying to achieve is is continually being not met but worked towards that that march towards whatever it is. Yeah, and you brought up something really important, and uh, this is to the contingency groups. Um, it, it, the concept of shame, mm -hmm. the concept of ego. It's really easy to to look at your group and to look at the progress of another group and say, mm -hmm. "Wow, we're not doing as good as they are." And shame and ego. They've both killed people in survival situations, yep. right? Oh, we'll this will never happen to us, right? We're better than that. Having a false sense of security, that has killed people. Mm -hmm. Shame has killed people. Oh, my God, my wife is going to kill me. I can't. Well, maybe the wife will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> the wife you know, might kill you. Yeah, or the husband. <laughs> but, you know, in any case, uh, you know, you, you come into this to, to the situation and you say, oh my God, everyone's going to look at me like I'm, I'm not this woodsman that I thought I was. Oh my God, people are going to get mad at me. And that has destroyed their morale. Mm -hmm. The same conceptual ideas that can destroy the morale of a person can destroy a group, yeah. right? Shame, ego, pride, all of those, those concepts can be applied to a group. Um, but like you said, if you're honest and if you're straightforward and if you're willing to admit your status, your condition, whatever it may be, then you can take the steps that you need, the actionable steps to improve. Yeah. So yeah, spot on. It, it seems like it sounds simple because it, it really is simple. That doesn't mean it's easy, 
Like I, I like to make a distinction between simple and easy, mm-hmm. partic- particularly in situations like this that require, you know, not only like individual accountability, but accountability for those around you. If you're planning on, you know, banding together either for, uh, you know, we're talking about survival situations, people often, you know, envision the worst possible scenario in their mind. Um, it may get to that someday, or it could just be we're camping. We're going to go camping for a week somewhere. And considerations need to be made, a plan needs to be made. I used my own family as an example for that, where uh, we had gone camping up in a fairly remote part of Colorado, but it had a good it had a good road that we could get in and out on, so we knew if we needed to get mm-hmm. out of there, it could be easy. Uh, we didn't bring enough water. We brought, yeah. like, we brought like 15 gallons of water, and we thought it was gonna be enough for, you know, mom, dad, kids, dogs, and cooking, and whatever, it, and it wasn't. It was enough for like 72 hours, but it wasn't enough for you know 96 hours, which was the goal. So um, we had, luckily, we had the filtration system, so we could mm-hmm. plus up our water. And there was a nearby water source that was you know, fairly clean. Um, after running it through a filter, I assume like nobody got dysentery or anything. So go us. The filters work, <laughs> but but uh, but I would have I would have preferred to have saved the the five hours of filling up these jugs that I had to drag up and down a mountain to the river um, by just making sure that I had a proper plan to begin with in the first place. So, you know, fast forward three months, we go back to the same place. We don't have the same problem because we had a system developed. Mm -hmm. We had tested our ideas first, um, you know, came up with a plan rooted in some, you know, a little bit of math, took an academic approach to our loadout, our load plan in the vehicle, and then go to execute, find out we have deficiencies. But we never would have known any of those deficiencies if we hadn't tested ourselves right. to begin with and been honest about our situation. You know, looking at looking at my at the time, eleven uh, year old and my and my seven year old, and being like, "Well, you know, girls, I guess we're gonna go stay in a hotel in a couple of days because uh, we're gonna run out of water." <laughs> and yeah. being honest with them in that situation because they're young, but they also understand that we need water. Like, <laughs> I'm thirsty. We're at ten thousand feet okay, we're running out of water. All right, maybe I'm not going to run around and jump and scream and play as much as I was yesterday or the day before last. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know something? Water, (laughs) it's so easy to overlook a lot of considerations with water. Like Mm -hmm. a gallon is approximately eight pounds, right? Mm -hmm. Give or take a couple ounces. So eight pounds for one gallon. And you, at elevation, you have to drink more. Mm -hmm. And for a family, you have to drink more. And then that doesn't even take into account the use of water for sanitation, mm-hmm. right? And then you start thinking like, okay, if I carry 10 gallons of water, that's 80 pounds, and that's gotta go into my vehicle somehow. So then you say, okay, well, how much of my vehicle, I mean, at some point, you, the carrying your capacity of your vehicle is gonna be met, Yeah, you know? So you have to really, really take into consideration, if you're planning on doing one of these exercises for 72 hours, which I wholeheartedly suggest people do a lights out drill, Turn the power off in your house and see if you can survive 72 hours in your home before you try 72 hours out on the trail, mm-hmm. right? You'll discover a lot of deficiencies in your home right off the bat. But the minute that you go and you take that kit and you do your bug out scenario and you're in your vehicle, then you're going to realize, wow, my, my vehicle can't support all the food, the water, the med, the security needs that we need uh, or require for 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's... That's powerful. That's that's a good move that you uh, you revisited it because a lot of people experience failure and say never going back to that, and that's a emotional response. I'll show you pictures after we do this yeah. podcast, and I'll tell you where it is. I don't want to tell everybody else because it's like 
it's not a real high trafficked area and yeah, you shouldn't. It's, it's easy to get there, but I don't want to tell people it's <laughs> give up my one good camping spot. Yeah. And for those listening, like stop posting your location, like check-ins on, on social media. Don't let people know where you are in that moment. Post afterwards. Yeah. That one's for free, by the way. Doesn't have to be, you don't have to document every single moment of your day in live, live in real time. That uh, I know our Amcon audience, like we, there's a lot of folks here who are off of most social media. Mm-hmm. And if they're on any sort of social media, it's like, uh, it's locals basically. Right. And, that, and that's it. They were, we had a lot of folks that were on Parlor, but you know, Parlor went the way of the dinosaur. Um, we've talked a lot about your background, how your background has informed kind of the way you do things. You gave us some awesome just EDC recommendations, things that are not, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a $10,000 kit setup. Like this is real simple stuff that anybody can keep on them. Um, it's not, it's useful in your everyday life. Uh, it's practical to carry uh, and you're not going to raise a lot of suspicion because there's a difference between going looking like your GI Joe ready for war Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're just a regular person. Yeah, tactical Tommy is what we call him. The uh, the flashlight. I love carrying a flashlight because I have a uh, I have bad vision, right? So I wear contacts most of the time, but uh, I'm a really terrible night vision, and so uh, I I don't use a. I, that's a really cool idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rip that off, by the way. But uh, are you talking? You talking about the bungee cord? Yeah, the bungee cord yeah, on so it, so you can reach into your pocket. I think that's. I, I use a. I use a hat. I have like a little clip, like a little clip light. That's. I'm one of those guys. So that's something. So taking it back, uh, Kyle Lamb is actually the one that showed this to Dylan Kennison from the Sig Academy. Dylan Kennison, a buddy of mine, showed it to me. So mm-hmm. proper attribution. Um, and one of my instructors, Tom Kyer, <clears throat> he showed me how you can take the same flashlight favorite flashlight and you can clip it to your yeah to your hat like that so a lot of people have seen haven't seen this before and they're like mind blown right and and meanwhile it's just looking at an item and seeing a, a, a secondary way of using it mm-hmm. you know um, but yeah rip rip off the idea oh, um, yeah. it's it's phenomenal it's a game changer if you do any low light classes um, and you know flashlights people think oh you just push the button and, and the light goes on but I mean, there's all sorts of tricks like map reading. You can you can hide the the beam. Yeah. Um, you know you can with a flashlight. You don't want to bleach yourself, right? When you're using it for certain applications. So if you look at most ceilings, they're white. If you look at most carpets, there's some type of gray, some type of light color. So you learn with the flashlight how to use it for your advantage. Um, and in a survival situation, I mean, we've used these on courses to demonstrate. Like, okay, if you need to, and I, I used to do this as a kid, we used to catch bullfrogs by flashing the flashlight at the frog, and you could take your finger, and you can actually touch the frog. If I had a spear, I could have speared that frog. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I had the ability to make a net, which I do because I can make it out of paracord, or I can carry a small gill net with me, it's very easy to catch frogs with a flashlight. So yeah. you have a food source. In fact, I mean, and I always joke, I say, the reason why jacking deer and that's like hitting a deer with a with a light and and shooting it yeah um (laughs) the reason why it's illegal is because it's super effective well in an emergency if you're truly trying to put food on the table survival situation the bald eagle is on the dinner plate yeah um (laughs) if you have dynamite and you can fish with dynamite guess what valid valid tool valid uh, method of catching fish if it's effective it's probably going to be illegal Mm -hmm. and you should study it 
you shouldn't practice it because you're probably going to break the law, right. but you should practice these effective ways so you can fall back on your training if you ever needed to. And that's where those manuals and things come into play. When you have things that can be described to you in excruciating detail, step by step, so that if you follow the steps, this should work if you're not able to practice it. So that whenever you do get in that environment, Correct. I think that's a great idea, man. That, that, you know, I, I am, I am very hesitant to recommend things like that. Um, just because of sometimes the association with this group, we don't want, we don't want people the yeah, I can see it now headline Amcon fishing with dynamite like that. Yeah, I know. Please, so please, please, you guys don't do that um, until the situation warrants it. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. You're probably not going to have dynamite in a Like we don't walk around with dynamite. We shouldn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, got 40, you know, 40 pounds of nitro and in, yeah. in, in boxes. Yeah. But I mean, I, and I joke like that, but if we look at a more realistic, uh, way of approaching mm -hmm. a highly illegal way of providing food for yourself in New York state snaring, like carrying snares is illegal um, because they're indiscriminate, right? Like now most people will say to catch a rabbit, it's the size of your fist and it's four inches high. Yeah. Well, that could catch a lot of different animals. House cat. Very yeah. much so. Right. And Therefore, they make it illegal. Well, you can make snares out of stainless steel fishing wire, out of stainless steel uh, fishing leader, and you can just rearrange the swivel and the snap swivel, and you have a perfectly good snare. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be more realistic than fishing with dynamite, right? Yeah. But again, more realistic, still illegal, but again, in an emergency, it's going to be effective. And if it's saving your life, it's okay in that respect to to do what you need to do. Right. This is these are not these are not like aggressive or predatory actions. No. This is in the in the framework of a survival situation or correct whatever the case may be. But you know what's even easier? Tell me. <laughs> even easier is being properly prepared ahead of time. Isn't you know it? what I mean? Like like <laughs> if I have one message for the Amcon, uh, Amcon crew, it's to be properly prepared prior. Right. Yes. And we could talk about piss poor performance. Uh, prevents uh, or pri piss poor preparation prevents. What was it? Uh, it no, I'm screwing this one up. Yeah, uh, prior proper planning prevents piss poor, poor performance. Seven P's <laughs> have not finished the coffee. You're yet. not. That, that was a new coffee when you got yeah, here. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, this, is, this is take one. So by yeah. The way. So I mean, what I can <laughs> tell people is just be prepared before you go out there. You know, have a float plan. Tell people where you're going. Tell people when you're coming back. Give your information to someone who's responsible. Yeah. Um, don't overstep your boundaries. Carry emergency equipment every single day. You'll never have to resort to that stuff if, if you do it all right. But where are you going to learn how to do it the right way? Associating with people that already do it that can yep. teach you. So that's why I'm excited to be on board. Yeah, good you know? man. I'm, I'm happy to have you here. I think we're gonna. I think we're. I think we're about out of time. So Damn we're gonna. It. We're gonna make this one. But I mean, you're more Another than welcome. You're more than welcome to come back anytime. Um, you know, like I, I offered it to to folks if they want to use. Uh, we're building another studio here that's going to be like yeah. a classroom style. Um, and so we're going to have a table that you guys can do the layouts and have an overhead camera and actually go through each piece of equipment and explain if you if you guys want. Like this is sure thing. how I envision it uh, or it's what I would do. Um, explain why we're using it, why what role it plays in the process and then, you know, some alternatives, some options because like uh, some people really love surefire lights. Some people are never going to spend more than $25 on a flashlight mm -hmm. and you got all kinds of kinds in between. So being able to figure out what works for everybody is, uh, is, is important. And 
I love the recommendations. The book recommendations are equally as important because part of that education and being prepared and getting yourself and your team and your community up to speed is by being purposeful and diligent in all of these. So, Kevin, I really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, guys, uh, back up your hardware with plenty of software. You know what I mean? So uh, keep, st- uh, keep studying and, and never, ever lose the passion for learning. So that's coming from a 14-year teacher and someone who has been a student for life myself. So thanks for having me. Thanks.